This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast. This is episode 27, and our guest today is Henry Gordon Smith of Agritecture. Agritecture is the team of urban agriculture consultants and offer consulting services for entrepreneurs, companies, and cities. They also provide feasibility studies, farm design recruiting, and local food system planning. So basically, Agritecture is about finding the relationship between agriculture and architecture in urban environments. Basically, having very beautiful and very sustainable farming systems in urban areas like in cities. We're talking about um, hydroponic gardens, aeroponics, a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to talk about with Henry about some trends that he's seen in urban agriculture. What are some international partners and what are their plans for urban agriculture in their countries or in their cities? Also, what some cities are doing in incorporating urban ag plans and what their goals are to create more resilient local food systems. So it's a really cool conversation we're going to have um, super excited that you're going to listen to it. And also a little plug. We've got a Facebook profile. Of course, you know, everybody has a Facebook profile. It's simply the farm traveler. Go there, follow our posts, see what we're up to. We really want to build like a community on Facebook that where if you've got any questions, you can come to us and ask us, or we can have the right people that are going to have the right answers. So go there. It's just facebook.com slash the farm traveler. And we also have a podcast group on there. It is open to anybody, so if you'd like to join that, please do it. Anyway, this is episode 27 with Henry Gordon Smith of Agritecture. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast. Henry Gordon Smith, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing well, man. Thanks for being on. So before we get started, you were with a company called Agritecture, which is really, really cool. But before we get started, kind of walk us through your background and kind of how you got interested in in agriculture. Well, I think the first thing to know about me is that I'm international. So I grew up in Hong Kong and Tokyo till I was 10. I grew up in Germany, Czech Republic, and Russia until I was 18. 
And then I moved to North America, Canada for my undergrad and New York City about seven years ago. So I kind of have this global outlook that framed the way I thought about cities and also the environment. And in my undergraduate degree, I got really interested in environmental security and essentially what's happening behind the scenes that's driving policy. And something called water wars really fascinated me, which is these battles that happen over water scarcity between the U.S. and Mexico or Israel and Palestine, India and Pakistan, U.S. and Canada. And I found out that what was really behind that was a lot of food, um, that essentially the production of food and the water needed for that is driving a lot of that water scarcity and, and how much water we really consume to produce the food we eat. And there's a resiliency kind of concern there for me as I became more aware about climate change. And so I, I started looking at how cities could be leaders in responding to that. And bringing agriculture back into the city was kind of this new idea that, that I was, it was new for me that I was exploring. And I couldn't find the right information. I couldn't find uh, a place where I could look at greenhouses versus high-tech vertical farms versus soil-based farms and get the information I needed to be um, engaged and active. So what I did was I created that place. I created a blog called Agritecture. And we were the first blog to really feature all these topics together and bring them under the umbrella of this idea of how cities uh, can integrate agriculture back into the built environment and be more resilient as a result. And that essentially uh, led to this kind of global community of interested people who then started requesting consulting from me. And that's what we are now. We're a blog and a consulting company. That's awesome. Yeah, looking at your your Instagram and your website, you've got a lot of really cool stuff on there, like a lot of international people on there with agriculture, and it's super fascinating. And it's cool to hear you talk about water wars, because over here in Florida, we've got water wars going on all the time with um, with the Apalachicola River, because Mississippi, Georgia, mainly Atlanta in Georgia, and Florida are always fighting over the water in that river. And so it's been going on for decades, trying to figure out who can get the most water out of it. So that's very interesting that you brought that up. So when did you guys start it and and how exactly has, what have you seen trend-wise with architecture in the agriculture landscape? So the blog started around 2010 and then the consulting business started in 2014. And in that period of time since 2014, we've consulted about 90 different clients in 21 countries. And what we've seen is that most of our clients, most of the people who are leading the development of urban agriculture are entrepreneurs. The biggest driver that I see for new farms is the social entrepreneurship trend combined with the kind of tech entrepreneur trend, right? So Elon Musk meets kind of Dan Barber, um, that kind of vibe. And, and that's bringing people to say, well, I can create a business that solves a problem. Why not do a business that's solving the environmental issues around food and water? And they say, I'm going to build an urban farm. I'm going to build a vertical farm that uses very little water. I'm going to build a soil-based rooftop farm. And so that's the vast majority of, of the entrepreneurs and, 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 and clients that I work with. But simultaneously, what's happened is as the consumer has become more excited about this, and as policy has started to catch up with that consumer trend for local food and the entrepreneurship trend for developing solutions for local food, the real estate developers have had to respond. They have to create amenities. They have to make their neighborhoods or their developments more attractive. We've also seen that cities have responded. Um, and so, for example, the city of Paris or the city of Singapore, these are some of the cities that have created really dramatic policies to accelerate agriculture as part of the tapestry of, of, of how they see the city now and in the future. So developers, you know, what they're trying to do is create a cool place, uh, an amenity. You know, there's one in Staten Island called Irby. 
that has a, a, an urban farm on it. There's developers that have invited urban farmers like Brooklyn Grange in New York to participate. You have a trend around agri-burbs, which are typically soil-based kind of um, responses to say, well, if we're building a, a residential community of houses, why build a golf course when we can build a farm? And then on the city side, you've got kind of uh, annual competitions like the Paris Culture Project in Paris, or you have kind of large funds like the AgTech Fund in Singapore that, that accelerates that or the education support they have for kind of an ag tech, uh, urban ag tech degree there. So it, it manifests in different ways depending on the region. But I think what happened first was kind of the consumer demand for local, followed by the entrepreneurship response to that, followed by developers, and now policy is catching up with it. That's really cool. I'm glad to hear that consumers are kind of getting more and more involved in it. That's something we always try to try to push, like consumers learning more about where their food comes from and how sustainable it should be and trying to buy locally. It, it looks like on your Instagram that Agritecture's Instagram, that a lot of these companies are going with hydroponics or aeroponics. So what are some things that you've seen with these huge vertical farms that they're doing? Like what are some benefits that you've seen where they're converting all these big warehouses or they're building all these vertical farms and they're just using hydroponics instead of um, row crops. So what are some benefits that you've seen that have become a result of that? Yeah, I think it's important to, to think about who are these entrepreneurs that are going to be developing these farms and, and the vast majority of them have not grown up on farms. Um, they haven't grown up even in the countryside where agriculture typically happens and they have no experience in agriculture. And so what hydroponics does for them is a couple things. It, it relates to their, again, connecting to that kind of tech ethos. It makes them feel like they're doing something tech and engineering-like that makes agriculture more sexy to them than a traditional soil-based farm. And, and that's a generalization. But in my experience, the vast majority of my clients um, are attracted to the role of technology in agriculture, not just agriculture. And so that, that moves them towards these kind of hydroponic indoor vertical farming approaches over some of the more soil-based in-ground approaches. And, and there's value to both. I'm not saying that one is better, but that is what where the trend is going. And that's why you see a lot of that on, my Insta on our Instagram is because that's the hot topic right now. And that's what's driving a lot of the entrepreneurs. And, and so I think that the benefits that attract them to that are that they don't need to buy a piece of land. They can rent an indoor space. You know, one of our clients, Farm One, is an entrepreneur called Rob Lang. He sold his tech business and he wanted to move to New York and re-engage with his passion for culinary arts. He had taken some classes and, and he became a, a plant-based vegan in his diet and he wanted to move to New York and do that. He wanted to create a business around that. And so what we were able to do for him is to help him take his idea uh, for kind of a high-end culinary experience and vertical farming experience and find an unused space in Manhattan and convert that space into a vertical farm and build a profitable business around serving Michelin star restaurants, pesticide-free, Manhattan-grown, uh, rare herbs. And, and that is really cool. You know, I mean, that's, that's so exciting that he had this idea and that we were able to help him get to that next stage. And I think that's very common when you look at these hydroponic systems and, and the projects they're developing. It's a very similar story to Rob that they have something that excites them about it. And then the hydroponic vertical farming piece lets them do it in a way that soil simply doesn't allow because soil um, weighs a lot. It, it can get very dirty. You can't stack it in the same way that you can hydroponic systems, which are lighter. Uh, you can't, um, you know, you don't typically grow year round and indoors with soil. It's possible, but it's not as common. 
So I think if you look at a place like New York or many, many of the cities in the world that are high in density where consumers are demanding local, willing to pay more for local, they have cold winters. So another reason is that you can grow year round in these systems. Um, it's kind of baked into it almost that you can grow year round. And that's a big value proposition for them. And I think that the final reason that I would say um, today is that the investors are interested in it. So if you can go to investor, you can say, our value proposition to our customers is that no matter what the weather, our products can be the same price and our product is going to be delivered at the same time and the same consistency and the same size. They can see that as part of the future as climate change gets worse. And they can see that that is something they want to take a risk on and invest in. Furthermore, the data around these engineered systems is much more dense, right? So you've got all these systems in one place. You've got sensors, you've got cameras, you've got farmers going around observing, creating operations, standard operating procedures. That becomes an asset, that becomes an IP asset that investors are also interested in. So, so those are some of the reasons why hydroponics is so hot and, and why certainly um, I've seen it increase so rapidly since I, I first started blogging about it. Those are some really good points. And I think you said that um, it's a little bit more sexy than regular farming. And I think that's a really, really good point, especially as more and more people are kind of getting interested in technology. They see that you can incorporate it very, very, very efficiently into agriculture. And they're like, oh, agriculture is a lot more than just being outside in the dirt and all that jazz. You can incorporate a lot of technology so it opens up a lot of windows. That's really cool. Have you noticed a lot of things going on in Silicon Valley in terms of agriculture? I've, I've, I've noticed on a few different podcasts that people are slowly and slowly developing ag businesses out in Silicon Valley with various types of technology. So have you seen any trends over in Silicon Valley? Yeah, it's a, that's an interesting question. You know, um, we've got one of, of our staff members, one of our horticulturalists is based in the Bay Area. And when I first started working with him, there really weren't many vertical farming companies there, for example. But now you've got plenty is there. They've built an enormous team. You know, they recently hired 20 plus uh, Tesla engineers and they have are trying to build you know, the most robotic, efficient, automated vertical farm that is, is going to be the vertical farm in the future is, is kind of their goal. You've got 1.1, which is another automated, very automated focused vertical farm. You've got Crop One Solutions, which is the holding company for Freshbox Farms, which is now a global vertical farming company also based in that, in that area. And that's just in the vertical farming side. You've also got uh, companies like Ironox that's doing robotics for greenhouses. You've got all kinds of cellular biology and ag tech um, companies overall. So I think I would say in the past three years, I've seen an explosion of companies in Silicon Valley get started uh, looking at ag tech, investors putting a lot of money into this. I mean, Plenty is, is probably the, the, the most well-funded vertical farming company in the industry, and it's also one of the newest. So that's interesting. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a sign, again, that the investors are really excited about it, but also that the young kind of engineers, the software folks, uh, the kind of culture around uh, what they've seen on the internet, whether it's from my blog or other blogs or, or documentaries, has now gotten into the ethos of people's minds. And, and they've said, well, I want to solve this problem too. You know, I want a piece of this. I want to get involved in this. It's agriculture. It's water, right? That's always going to be in demand. We have to be better at this. We have to be able to grow more with less. And I think that that's what we're seeing there. And it's exciting. Um, but I do want to say that I think the biggest flaw of all of this excitement is that, you know, it's not really always focused on the biology and the horticulture and the science. A lot of the, the new people that come to the space approach it with a engineering focus. They say, oh, 
we can build robots and, and big data and AI, and that's going to solve agriculture. The fact is that it's still extremely difficult to grow crops consistently and to get that crop from seed to harvest and to the customer without the common problems around pest issues, inconsistency, lost crops, et cetera, um, food safety. It's extremely, extremely complicated. You're, you're, you're not, it's not a factory that's producing watches. These are, these are complex biological systems. And I'm excited about a future where we crack that code, but I still think that there's a lot of hubris and naivety from the engineering and software world towards uh, the realities of growing uh, plants. I like that. That's that's a really good point. Um, I've noticed this trend with with you know like the plant based meats, like the Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat. What do you, what are your thoughts on that, real quick? Like, are, do you see that as a more sustainable method, or what are your thoughts on that in terms of this whole <laughs> sustainability future? What what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's another interesting example, right? It's it's it, they saw a problem. There's a major, major problem with meat consumption and its impact on the environment, and they've engineered a solution to that. I think the downside is is that it's not necessarily healthier, um, and the perception around meat being unhealthy and this meat being healthier, that's for some reason people think it's healthier. Um, as you know, maybe as part of like a vegan diet, it might be considered healthier. But it's it's not really. So that misconception is disappointing to me. Um, and then the sustainability impact of it is also um, there's been some analysis that shows it's not necessarily as good as people might perceive. So that gets frustrating because you really want to get to real long term solutions and not short term trends and hypes that drive IPOs and, and 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 in the end benefit you know shareholders more than they benefit consumers and the environment. So I think it's 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 a it's it's just another. I think it's a positive move in the right direction. I think that um, I think cellular um, biology is probably going to have even more of, a, of an impact on that as that gets even more advanced and, and the ability to grow lab-based meat and, and, and improve that technology to create products that are both healthier and a lower carbon footprint. So I think it's a move in the right direction, but I think it's not, it's not the solution yet. It's, it's, just, it's just a step towards that. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, you know, you've probably heard these studies that they say that um, the livestock industry produces more uh, um, greenhouse gases than the transportation industry does. Well, I read up on that study, and it says for, for the livestock industry, it takes into account, of course, raising the animals, the gases that the animals have, um, the whole manufacturing process, the whole transportation process. Well, for transportation, it's just cars on the road. It doesn't count into, it doesn't take into account uh, manufacturing, transportation of the materials, and all that jazz. So it's a little bit skewed one way or the other. But I totally agree with you that it's not the solution, but it could be something out there that kind of helps the livestock industry and helps agriculture get a little bit more sustainable in a very certain um, aspect of it. So that's that's some very good points you had. I guess I'll say one more thing there, um, yeah. because it's kind of interesting now to see, and, and I've certainly learned more about this as I've, I've also been through my own journey of understanding agriculture there are ways to grow, to, to produce cattle in a carbon negative and even a carbon reducing way. And I think that that's also a big misconception. And, and I know that the typical way that, that beef is produced certainly, certainly isn't that, but there are regenerative agriculture models. There's, there's ways that the cattle with certain free range or open range strategies and certain intercropping can actually restore the soil and recoup some of that carbon. Do we have enough space for that? For everyone to eat a burger every single day, certainly not. But it has to be part of the discussion when we're thinking about a sustainable future 
we can't just manufacture all the meat in the future in labs. It is important to know that the animals historically and today can play an important role in a low carbon agriculture future. So I'll just add that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's a really good point to add. And I think I saw something yesterday, actually, that said the United States is losing about 175 acres per day, which is absolutely nuts to think about. And so, yeah, we don't have nearly enough land where we can grow livestock very sustainably. And so we're going to have to figure out something where we can do that because we just keep losing more and more land. Um, It's a very good Mm -hmm. point. Have you have you noticed any country over the other kind of trying to be more sustainable in terms of their agricultural production, like the United States, um, um, Dubai? What are some trends you've noticed internationally in terms of them trying to go more sustainable? Well, you know, I think I was recently in Belgium and they have a really interesting initiative as part of kind of the EU strategy for sustainability based on the circular economy. And for those of you who don't know, circular economy is about basically matching different uh, uses. They could be manufacturing, agriculture, they could be residential commercial uses, and everything basically has an input and an output. And so if we can create a circular economy where the input for one use is sourced from the output of another, and then the output of that use goes to the input for another, then we have this circular economy where waste is reduced and we're actually designing cities and regions in a way that they are self-sustaining and overall producing less waste and, and less of an impact. So it's kind of like a, a very deep green perspective on um, sustainability that's not so much about resilience, but more about resource flows and, 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 um, and, and, and low, lowering impact. And so Belgium has, has this as part of its mission. And when I visited uh, the urban farms there, I was there for about a week, um, visited about 25 different urban and also some peri-urban farms. Every single one was doing something to reuse an, an output of some other location and be part of that circular economy. And so I think that's really interesting leadership because the policymakers have talked about it. There's some incentives if you can demonstrate you're involved in the circular economy. So capturing rainwater, using reused coffee um, for, for mushroom production. Um, there was an example of a, a large scale aquaculture facility that was across the street from um, from a large scale tomato greenhouse. And they shared resources using the waste from the fish for the plants and also the, the greenhouse shared energy with, with the, the, the fish farm. So, you know, these are real examples that there's data around that has now led to a whole, uh, even more of them. And so that's a really great example. You know, the Euro- Europe in general, Western Europe in general, has, has been a really, really good example of this. Um, Belgium is a really good example of this. Brussels and its circular economy and urban ag is, is a great example of this. Um, I think that if you look at Singapore and it creating an overall goal for um, food independence. Also, Dubai, uh, you know, the the minister of food security there, and how that shows leadership by saying we have somebody responsible for this. Uh, Atlanta, their director of urban agriculture, is another example of this. These are some of the cities that have said, okay, we're going to put it money and leadership behind this, and that drive innovation and entrepreneurship and investment that will be part of that solution. So those are also some some really good examples. I mean, if you look at the global South, there's a whole other series of examples of empowering smallholders, that kind of thing. But I think on the policy level, those are some of the examples I wanted to share. Those are all really good examples. I'm glad that policy is kind of catching up to that. I, Me too. I'm, <laughs> talking about that, that hydroponic thing you saw with some chickens, there is this, there's this model of hydroponics, and I can't remember the name of it. With it, you can incorporate 
growing plants, raising fish, raising chickens, composting certain materials. And it's this perfect little circle of a little bitty ecosystem kind of growing everything in harmony. And it's super fascinating. I haven't seen it in action, but that sounds almost just like it. So I'm, I'm very curious to learn more and more about that. That's really cool. Uh, that's awesome. I've seen on your Instagram that you guys have a lot of, you have some partners in Dubai and some stuff going on over there. I'm always fascinated with stuff going on in Dubai. I mean, their police cars are Lamborghinis and Porsches. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's just super cool. So what are some things that they're doing, of course, in the middle of the desert that are incorporating more sustainable agriculture practices? Yeah, I'm fascinated by the overall um, region around around Dubai as well. We've worked in Kuwait, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE. Uh, so it's been, and we're doing a, a project as well in, in Lebanon. So it's been really, really exciting. Um, look, they have no water. I mean, they really have, have basically no water. I mean, there's some groundwater that is being, you know, declining very rapidly. They have um, desalination plants that they use to get most of their water, which are very expensive and inefficient. Um, but what they do have is a really strong commitment to innovation and actually sustainability now as they see that their future post-hydrocarbons is, is extremely critical. Um, so I guess some of the things that are interesting is the saltwater greenhouse model. So there's a really interesting project out of Kaus University in Saudi Arabia um, in, uh, where they have a good innovation center for different agricultural uh, technologies. And um, Ryan Leffers there and his team at, at Red Sea Farms is basically breeding tomatoes for that that can grow off salt water so they're basically transforming the 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 problem really they're saying we we have an abundance of salt water so let's find ways to grow crops using that abundance and that really is a is a is a big game changer and they can do that hydroponically as well which saves a lot of water in the process and so they have to do some filtration obviously and they have some interesting ip around that whole process but that's going to be a real future for that if you look at the International Biosaline Institute in Dubai, they are doing research just alone on how they can use salt water to grow certain crops. And, and one of the ideas is, is halophytes, which are these, these you know, plants that, that actually are very um, rich in nutrients, but they're not commonly consumed. So they're not like a popular product. But for example, there's one which is like a sea asparagus, which is basically tastes like a salted asparagus, and it's grown using salt water. It's extremely efficient and it's high in nutrients. And so, you know, that is a product that they could try to commercialize and then also try and make popular in the marketplace through chefs and social media that might transform where, where certain products come from. There's other really interesting innovations around how they um, are optimizing cooling for animal production, uh, milk production. There's really a lot of advancements happening across the infrastructure for agriculture in the region. There's a whole discussion about using wastewater Right. And this is an interesting one. You know, globally, we produce enough wastewater to actually grow all our food. Um, so, you know, can we get over the perception that, you know, OK, what's in the waste stream shouldn't be producing, shouldn't be used to grow the food that I consume? Um, can we create a more advanced filtration systems that consumers feel confident in? That would be an amazing solution for the Middle East. But there's a lot of um, taboo around that, obviously. There are some really interesting greenhouses. Um, if you look at Pure Harvest, they've set up a really amazing greenhouse using um, some advanced technology from the Netherlands, and they can maintain a consistent temperature year-round. But that, of course, is at a very heavy energy cost. You've got vertical farms popping up, like Badia Farms, 
in Dubai that can then control that environment and exclude the hot, uh, humid desert air, and they're able to then produce plants year-round. So it's accelerating, and Abu Dhabi itself has just announced, you know, a 275-plus million-dollar fund just to go into ag tech solutions, and that's one of several incentives. So I think you're going to be seeing a lot more activity, a lot more new examples there. Um, they want to be in the top 10 of the Global Food Security Index by 2030, I believe is the date. So they have a lot of work to do. And actually, we talk about this in detail on our podcast episode of Locally Grown in uh, Dubai. That's really cool. I'm glad to hear that they're trying to be more sustainable. And that's really neat that they're going with, um, they're trying to find ways to grow tomatoes with salt water. And they already have asparagus that way. That's really cool. All about trying to find a solution, all your problems in the best way possible. That's really neat. Yeah, I just found your podcast. We're going to have to listen to it too. It sounds really, really cool. I love getting thoughts on just the whole international side of agriculture. We've interviewed a few people. We interviewed some um, dairy farmers in the UK and they have a milk vending machine which cool. is kind of help, yeah. Which is help, <laughs> which is helping with sustainability because they're not bottling it. They're just having people come there and collect it, so they're saving with transportation costs, plastic costs. So it's really cool. Um, what are your What are your hopes for for agriculture over the next ten or over the next five or ten years? Oh wow, what a what a good question and a fun one. Yeah, I think the first chapter of agriculture was me as a young, um, you know, aspiring social entrepreneur finding my place in the sustainability movement and and sharing the ideas I was learning through our blog, Agritecture, and some of the events. So that was really the first five years that I was so excited when people um, wanted to, you know, hire me for my ideas and, and the data that I had gathered. And we've been so blessed to be able to consult in such a variety of projects. And what that's done is created a really robust methodology for planning uh, new kinds of farms, uh, modern farms. And also it's given us a really robust data set of, of global examples and even some of our own theoretical and applied models that we've consulted on. What the next stage for agriculture is about is, is acceleration. You know, our mission as a company is to help cities adapt to climate change by integrating agriculture back. And we want to do that in ways that is, is independent of selling one approach, but it should be about a diverse set of solutions, tools in the toolbox. And so what we're working on right now is a digital product that allows anyone anywhere in the world to put some inputs on a website and get an output of what kind of farm they should build and some of the considerations for developing that farm. Cost, you know, considerations on typical scale, considerations maybe on some uh, policy or some examples to look at, additional resources to go further. And that's really our way of, of, of digitizing the work that we've already done, making it more accessible, and making our impact even broader and more global. So I'm excited as we develop that product and launch it um, later this year or early next year, and then start to scale that and market that around the world uh, to help diversify the models that are available on it. So I think our mission is broadening beyond urban ag, and it's moving more into local agriculture, as we've learned that the system and the scale that's needed really should be about more than just in the city, but also that really valuable and, and close nearby resilient land near the city as well should be converted into certain types of sustainable farms. So that's where we're going. And I'm so excited about it. That's awesome. I'm glad you guys are excited about it. And that's a really good direction to head in. Yeah, I think the answer is more along the lines of, um, of locally grown produce in cities and countrysides, all that really cool stuff. So that's a really good point. 
I like to ask all of our all of our guests this question. You kind of touch base on it that consumers are getting a little bit more interested in sustainability in, in sustainably grown produce. So, what are your thoughts right now on the farmer consumer relationship, kind of both in the United States, but more so more so internationally? Well, I think that you know, if we look in the United States, for example, we've got 30 years of of the data suggesting that the age of the U.S. farmer has increased. We also have data that suggests that the size of the farms has increased. And that usually, or as you dig deeper, it seems to be a consolidation of smaller farms. So the relationship between the consumer and the farmer that used to exist 30, 50 years ago, where you would visit a farm or your parent worked on a farm or you grew up on a farm, that connection to the process of agriculture and the, the operations and activity and realities of that has been lost as we moved into cities. It's just been lost. And so now there's a craving to get nature back into the city in different ways. And some of this is green walls, green roofs, um, you know, winter gardens, various um, strategies. You see it now in retail, people bringing greenery into retail in ways that they, they didn't do before. You see it in fashion now. These are all signs of, of the urban dweller craving that connection. I think local agriculture is one of those. So What needs to happen is experiences that help the consumer in a very urban, tech, sexy way connect with nature and agriculture specifically um, that meets the the, the convenience and reality of urban life. So I think a lot about um, year-round farmers markets, um, interesting indoor spaces or um, incubators for farming startups that are in the city, even though their eventual impact will be outside of the city, the access to talent, mentorship, uh, events, networking is is in the city. And we've done this a little bit by by with with our company, um, AgTechX, which we recently acquired, a, a small incubator in Brooklyn that created this ecosystem for uh, early stage startups and ag tech to gather together. And we had events and all of this. And some of the people that visit are just consumers that are curious about this. And they, they want to ask questions. They want to engage. They want to learn. And I think that creating more of those spaces is something you're going to see across the board in cities. I think um, how retail and, and, and parks and developers engage in this is going to be critical. They need to be incentivized because the consumers want it, but they don't really have the business case um, to do it because cities are still a little bit behind in saying, yeah, you can put a farm in here. You're allowed to, to have a, a commercial activity on this residential structure, for example, which is typically not allowed. So I think, I think that's a big part of it. I think teaching people how to grow food at home could be an enormous impact whether it's balconies or indoor spaces. Um, There's actually a lot you could do that could transform your behavior as you understand the agricultural system on on your own at home, or even smaller systems in restaurants. We're seeing those get a lot more popular, uh, systems like Farm Shelf or AgriLution based out of uh, Germany. So there's, 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 I think it's just gonna start to um, spread, but I don't think it's gonna be a revolution. I think it's gonna be a step-by-step process where people experiment with models that engage consumers and are also, uh, you know, a, a win for whoever's providing that, that 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 operational model, and then those will start to be the examples that spread in popularity and become more commonplace. So I think it's not going to be unusual in the future to rent a condo where there'll be a shared garden, whether it's an indoor high-tech garden or outdoor community garden. I don't think it'd be unusual to go to a restaurant where they're growing microgreens and mushrooms in the future, like Smallhold which is a great company that grows mushrooms in restaurants and supermarkets. I don't think it'd be unusual to go to a supermarket with a rooftop greenhouse or a vertical farm connected to it. I don't think it'd be unusual to see floating farms 
near the city as you're on your way to work or coming back from work. I think that there's going to be a lot more of this because the fact is that our agricultural system is at threat and we also have consumers that want more transparency, quality local food. So those two things are going to continue to drive this forward and create new models. I really like that. It's all about everybody kind of learning. They all can have their own little part in sustainably grown food and kind of helping the climate. I really like it. All really good points. Um, well, Henry, this has been a really cool conversation. If people want to learn more about you guys, you on Instagram, you're just agritexture, but where else can they find you guys and learn and kind of follow what you guys are doing? Yeah, definitely check us out on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook if you like following the social media feeds. If you want to dig deeper into some of the past projects we've worked on, look at some of the online resources we have, or think about taking a class in person or online, which we're working on an online class now, you can just go to www.agritecture.com. And that's agritecture, not architecture. So you'll be able to find it. And um, hopefully you enjoy the website and, and we have our blog on there as well. So dig deep into that and, and make sure you follow your dreams and, and think about the best way that you can make an impact on the world. Absolutely. Well, we'll be looking for you. We'll be following your social media and we will absolutely be listening to um, your podcast, Locally Grown In, which sounds really, really cool. Um, well, Henry, thanks for being on the podcast. We greatly appreciate it. We wish you guys nothing but the best of luck. Thank you. This was so much fun. Take care. Hey, everyone. We're trying to make things easier for you to listen to the podcast. We are now a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, and that means you can now find us on an additional platform. We're now available on the Waypoint app on your Apple TV, Roku, or Amazon Fire Stick, smart TVs like Samsung, and even game systems. While you're on there, check out over 2,500 of the best hunting and fishing shows and short films. Download the app and watch and listen anywhere. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. Six, eight, Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.